Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's August 23rd, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, uh, joined by somebody who actually knows something about the law. Uh, Adam White is research fellow at the Hoover Institution and executive director of George Mason University Law School's Administrative Law Center and a proud Iowa Hawkeye. Thanks for joining me, Adam. Well, thanks. Uh, Thanks, Charlie. We'll see how proud the Hawkeyes are after they deal with Wisconsin's offensive line this season. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that in a while. All right. Let's let's start off with it. It, it, it of course, uh, is hard to keep up with the hurricane of uh, of news, tweets and presidential comments. But I want to start with this extraordinary soundbite uh, from the president of the United States on on Fox News, an interview with with Fox News, where he suggests that becoming a cooperating witness or flipping should be illegal. This is what the president of the United States said. This whole thing about uh, flipping, they call it. I know all about flipping for 30, 40 years. I've been watching flippers. Everything's wonderful. And then they get 10 years in jail and they they flip on whoever the next highest Mm -hmm. one is or as high as you can go. It it almost ought to be outlawed. It's not fair. Okay, Adam. I, you, your 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 reaction to to that? Uh, you're talking about he known flipping all of his life, and there's just something wrong about this. Kurt Anderson tweeted out: A president of the United States is saying that a criminal's loyalty to his fellow criminals is a sacred principle, and that it's wrong for law enforcement to interfere with that, which seems to be pretty close to what the president is suggesting, isn't it? Right. Well, we have our priest uh, privilege, and we have our spousal privilege, and now we have our our uh, co-conspirator privilege. You know, I have to admit, my first reaction when I saw that clip, I, w- I thought back to maybe the most poignant scene in the first Godfather movie where Michael's in the garden talking with his father, and his father is near the end of his life. Vito Corleone is, is, is very stressed out, and he says, uh, you know, Michael, I wish, I thought you were going to be the, a senator, a governor. And, you know, I've watched that movie so many times and thought, what would it be like if Michael Corleone were president? Well, it would probably be a little bit like this where you'd have a president focused first and foremost on the problem of of uh, criminal defendants ratting each other out. Yeah, and this is not the first time that the president, you know, plausibly sounds like a mob boss. I mean, this is a yeah. guy who is the successor to Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, the morning after the uh, the Paul Manafort verdict, he tweets out basically, you know, his sympathy for, for Paul Manafort and describing – how brave he was and how much he admired him. And the bravery, of course, was refusing to confess or acknowledge his crimes or cooperate with federal prosecutors. And, yeah. We, wow. can, we, can, we can stipulate all the problems inherent in criminal prosecution. The fact that prosecutors do have immense power, often with too little oversight. The fact that they can overcharge uh, mm-hmm. defendants just for the sake of squeezing them. And we all understand that there can be abuse in the system, including in the plea bargaining system. All of that said, President Trump's approach to this really is the worst possible thing we could hear from a, a president. Um, there's a I saw maybe a week ago somebody retweeted a page from The Art of the Deal, President Trump's famous book, where he goes on and on about the importance of personal loyalty. And obviously that's what matters more than anything to President Trump is, is the extent to which he thinks the people are being loyal to him in a personal way. But, of course, our president, all presidents, have a much higher loyalty at issue. It's the one they swear an oath to at their inauguration. 
And it's the, and also their constitutional obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, including execution of our criminal laws through the criminal justice system. And so when I saw this yesterday, um, President Trump's tweet about Manafort, I, I, I responded in kind in Twitter and posted a link to the video of President Trump uh, swearing his constitutional oath in January 2017. And I said, President Trump needs to spend less time reflecting on Paul Manafort and more time reflecting on his oath. I think it's something we all need to be taking much more seriously right now. You know, I mean, there, there's been a lot of loose talk about, uh, you know, norms and, uh, the, and the and 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 the rule of law. But but really, in the last 48 hours, I, I, you know, the, the points you just made, I think, have been underlined that that here we have a president who has this sort of glandular uh, attraction to personal loyalty that clearly overrides you know any sort of 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 a loyalty to the to the rule of law or as, as you point out to to his oath to you know faithfully uphold and execute the the laws so i mean i just want to expand on that is there any pre- and by the way and of course then we go back uh, to the weekend where while the jury was still deliberating and was not sequestered uh, the president commented on an ongoing criminal trial which i'm pretty sure is unprecedented in in the modern in the modern era yeah. Uh, we, we struggle to come up with analogies, and, and I, I can't. Maybe you can. Well, or yeah, parallels. So I, I'd say, as with so many aspects of President Trump, what we see in many ways is an almost bizarro version of some of the same debates we had with President Obama. You know, of course, in terms of the celebrity of the candidate and the, the personalization of politics and so on. But I recall towards the end of the Obama administration, conservatives rising up in outrage over President Obama, uh, you know, refusing to enforce the uh, the immigration laws right. to their fullest extent, refusing to defend the Defense of Marriage Act uh, against the constitutional challenge in court. And when those events occurred, or also uh, refusing to uh, you know enforce the the marijuana laws in, in the states that wanted to legalize it. And when that happened, conservative legal scholars. Conservative policymakers and others all rose up and invoked the take the president's uh, what we call the take care clause, his constitutional obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And there was some real debates about this politically and in legal scholarship and and so on. Now, one of the challenges of that that kind of provision is that it's very um, it's very amorphous. It doesn't lend itself to obvious legal lines enforceable in court. But there was a very interesting debate about what it really meant. And so I'm sort of dismayed now to see the uh, the Republican president now being the one who is really uh, trumpeting the fact that that he he doesn't want to see laws enforced and and the 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 combination of his vocal embrace of that position and the deafening silence by many quarters on the right to sort of harken back to the debates we had in the Obama years uh, is really dismaying. But for me, that's one of the immediate uh, parallels. It's also unclear in in terms of of the state of the law and the Constitution, which is why I wanted to talk to you. You know what what the consequences for some of the president's action will be. I, I saw that you did tweet out uh, Jack Goldsmith's piece, which was in the Weekly Standard yesterday, where he discussed uh, what could possibly happen next, including the yeah. president uh, invoking the nuclear option, and basically the nuclear options include firing a whole bunch of people, uh, the top folks in the Department of Justice, the special counsel, uh, stripping more uh, folks of their of their security clearance, or perhaps handing out pardons. Uh, like Skittles to uh, to his friends, family, uh, and cronies uh, in order to shut down this investigation. Now, you know, as a layman, 
this would clearly be the obstruction, destruction of this of this investigation. But you've pointed out that, you know, when it comes to the president's constitutional powers, there's not necessarily a bright line. Could you just talk about that? Uh, you know, we, we, we know, what constitutes illegal behavior by the president and what constitutes legal but but perhaps impeachable behavior by the president? You know, I tried to explore this at length, maybe too great a length, a few weeks ago in The Standard in a piece on, um, on the president's power to pardon and the House's power to impeach and the, the broader power of the executive branch, in, in this case, Mueller, to prosecute. And I said, one of the real challenges, what makes it so interesting, the, the sort of the slow motion collision of Mueller and Trump and perhaps uh, the uh, Democratic-controlled House of Representatives, is that each of them is wielding a power, powers that in many ways are absolute. They're not meaningfully overseen. Even Mueller, obviously, any prosecutions he'd bring against anybody are brought in court, and, and judges and juries have the final say. But Mueller has a lot of power in terms of discretion of the, the tools he's going to use that goes effectively unreviewed. And so I was trying to explain how for each of these three, the ultimate judge is going to be the people, the American people, looking in hindsight and judging how all of this played out. And at future generations, and even just in the near future, they'll look back at the election results from 2020, 2024, and so on, um, and, and, and view those as casting constitutional judgments of a sort on what just happened. In the same way that the Republicans' resounding defeat in the midterm elections in 1998 is really seen as a rejection of their attempt to impeach President Clinton. But the problem that you just identified is that these are these are not obvious bright lines that you 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 enforce in court. You don't look to the precedents in a Supreme Court constitutional law casebook for answers to this. And we often then so we often hear the term constitutional crisis thrown around for you know occasions like this where there isn't a clear answer, specifically a clear answer in court. As I said in the piece uh, for the Standard, when you hear the word constitutional crisis, what you ought to think is this is a crisis of the American people to be unable to decide these things for themselves, going beyond sort of legalistic, lawyerly lines. And you see that over and over again, whether we're talking about a pardon or we're talking about the stripping away of those national security clearances. And I'm not a, I'm not a particular fan of Brendan myself, given how he conducted himself in mm -hmm. the Obama years. But for all of these... Over and over again, both the president's critics and his supporters tend to race back to legalistic lines without mm -hmm. sort of sort of sidestepping the bigger picture and the need for us to draw sort of a bigger picture conclusion as to what we'll tolerate from a president. I think this is really an important point because I do think that uh, that we're always looking for somebody to swoop in, somebody on the white horse to you know to to you know reinstate the guardrails or to enforce these. When ultimately, what you're saying is it's going to be on us. It, yeah. it, it's not going to be the courts. It's not going to be um, who, who else knows. It, it is going to be the American people through the, the, the Congress. And then, of course, we have to decide, you know, whether our moral compass has moved, what we're willing to tolerate. Um, you know, for example, the, the, the question, and maybe you're, you're getting at this, you know, the, the question, should the president of the United States be able to pardon himself? Well, yeah. um, that is, you know, it is, you know, un, undetermined by the yeah. courts. But I do think it's a fundamental question that the American people have to decide. How do they feel about that? What is their view of the Constitution? Is the president, you know, in, in that case, literally above the law, in, in effect, or, or close to 
being above of the law. And, you know, that's that's going to be a tricky situation, particularly in a, in a highly polarized tribal political environment, because you could certainly imagine a situation where the, you know, the uh, at least a, a portion of the Congress uh, is large enough to to block any sort of impeachment or removal, despite the fact that the the actual evidence would be overwhelming. So, you know, this is this is one of those moments where you realize that uh, the system of checks and balances only works if the American public demands that they work. That's right. And I, you know, for example, the self-pardoning issue, which I touched on a little bit in the weekly standard piece, as soon as Trump really started musing publicly on Twitter about his pardon power, you saw some of some law professors on the left, you know, rise up and, and write op-eds saying why it would be just totally unconstitutional for a president to pardon himself. But that's not really, it, their arguments are totally unpersuasive. There's really nothing in the constitutional text that forbids it. So it becomes a much more delicate question about constitutional values outside of the court. Even describing the question as can a president pardon himself, I think is too broad. You could think of circumstances, maybe maybe sort of far-fetched, although in this day and age, maybe nothing is far-fetched, where you might have a genuinely rogue prosecutor, say under, under a new independent counsel statute, or you might have state prosecutors really going beyond any justifiable limits in pursuing a president. And you could see a president in totally good faith deciding that the only way to clear away that hassle of litigation and continue to be president and serve in the public interest would be to pardon people near him or to pardon himself. It's not all self-pardons, I'd say, are necessarily created equal. There's probably a strong presumption against their legitimacy in American culture, and rightly so. But even debating it at that high level are, is, is a self-pardon itself unconstitutional, really kind of avoids the, the much more challenging debate over whether a self-pardon by President Trump for the things, the, the sort of actions or alleged crimes that we're now discussing, whether that would be justifiable. We really need to hone in on those value choices. Yeah, and there was, of course, debate among the founding fathers about this sweeping pardon right. power and and whether or not it might be abused. And even though I think they were very, very clear-eyed about the need to check power, there is sort of a, a you know assist a, an assumption that you would have honorable people or reasonably honorable people wielding that sort of power, and that's going to be tested. Um, let, let me just go back to the uh, and I, and I want to I want to go back to the the thirty five thousand foot uh, you know look at the at, at at the problems this has created for the administration. But but let's I want to dial down in some of the the, the legalism, which is why I want to talk to you about this because I'm not a lawyer. Sure. Uh, sure. The, the the most damaging. Uh, the most damaging aspect of this week's developments, of course, were um, Michael Cohen's uh, pleading guilty, at, particularly to the counts involving the payoffs to a porn star and a former Playboy model, and saying that he did this at the direction of the president. Um, now, he has been convicted of felonies for making those payments. Lanny Davis, who is his new attorney, says, well, if it's a felony for Michael Cohen to make those payments, isn't it also then a crime for the president of the United States to have directed those payments? Um, there seems to be some debate or some question. You know, so give me your take, your initial take on the legality of those payments. The president gave the interview to Fox News where he yeah. said, it's not a crime because the money came from me, not from the campaign. So where are we at here? What do, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think he's really mis- either misstating or misunderstanding the issue, right? When he says this isn't misspending of campaign finance funds. No, no, no. The problem is that Cohen is perhaps, uh, perhaps Cohen's actions constituted an illegal contribution in kind right. to the campaign. He was paying off, you know, these, these, these adult film actresses, buying their silence, um, not, not routing the money through the campaign, but saving the campaign the trouble of having to do it itself. Um, so Trump is misstating the issue. Now I have to admit, and I'm not a campaign finance lawyer, at first glance, I'm a, I was a little bit skittish about the idea that this would be a campaign finance violation because it's not always self-evident that what's happening here is President Trump trying to save his campaign so much as President Trump doing the things or candidate Trump doing the things he did throughout his life to shield himself and, and you know his spouse uh, from from this sort of public disclosure. Right? Was Cohen paying off these adult film stars because of President? Trump's or because of candidate Trump's campaign or because Trump didn't want Melania to find out about this. And I thought that the, the most balanced treatment of this actually came on, on the, the Lawfare blog, a blog post by Bob Bauer. Most of us think of him as President Obama's White House counsel. But more importantly for this point, Bauer was is, is one of the nation's leading election lawyers. He was before he joined up with President Obama. And Bauer had a blog post where he said oftentimes most of the time, prosecutors don't pursue this kind of charge precisely because it is it is a blurry question of whether these sorts of payments um, are for the candidate's can, you know candidacy or for the candidate's personal life. Um, now, in this case, you know I think the important things are the timing of the payments, the timing of the strategy of the payments, and so on. The fact that Cohen says now that they were at the president uh, Trump's behest. I'm less impressed by that. I mean, Cohen's not doesn't strike me as the most trustworthy or truthful character, and I don't think we should take right. what he says at, at face value. Yeah, but of course, uh, they're also now suggesting that uh, what uh, David Pecker from National Enquirer is uh, is cooperating with the prosecutors, and they yeah. apparently have you know texts and emails and and who know who who knows what, and of course. Right. And of course, we don't know. You know, there's the drip, drip, drip of this investigation, and uh, you know where, where Mueller is going. What is your um, your opinion about uh, the propriety of doing anything after, say, Labor Day? Um, these there's been some debate back and forth that there are Justice Department guidelines that would suggest that that the prosecutor take no substantive action uh, on anything that might affect an election. What is it? 60 days before the, the election. Is that a yeah. firm guideline? I mean, do you, do you think that Mueller will regard that as, as a bright line? Well, so, that, just, so, that he does, so that he doesn't pull a Comey. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to put a, a tie a bow on that last conversation yeah. for the, for the point you closed with, I do think in this case, it does strike me as a, as a campaign finance violation. I was okay. just sort of taking right. a long way there. In terms of what Mueller might do, yeah, there is that Justice Department guideline. Mueller is obligated under the regulations binding his office to follow Justice Department regulations and guidelines whenever possible. I'd say in this case, I do hope that the investigation takes a, takes a breather uh, at September 1st. It's funny, on the one hand, uh, you see President Trump's critics saying that this needs to be, uh, that, that Mueller needs to, to, to finish the job as fast as possible. On the other hand, they don't want it finished between this window of September 1st and the election. I'd say that the latter course is probably better. And I, in fact, I think more than that, I think that the special counsel should make a public announcement saying that it is putting these things on hold to the maximum extent possible until after the election. 
And I'd say a further statement uh, indicating that, you know, the, the, that to the extent that people have not yet been prosecuted, the special counsel's office does not mean to offer any implications one way or the other about what's afoot. And I'll say that where I'm going with this is, in general, I think one of the real failings of Mueller, and I tend to be favorably inclined towards Mueller, although I don't, I don't assume he's, he's perfect, I think he's doing a good job. The one thing where he, I don't think he's been doing a good job is there hasn't been nearly enough transparency and disclosure from the special counsel's office about how it's going about things, hmm. how, it, how it understands the nature of its constitutional or statutory limits. We find out about these things after the fact when indictments are filed. But given that the special counsel has this special measure of independence, I've long thought that the, what the, this, the special counsel needs to bend over backwards to telegraph as much as it responsibly can in advance. So again, so the American people can make judgments along the way. That's a very interesting take because a lot of people would say that this was one of the uh, the virtues of the Mueller investigation is the yeah. fact they have been so tight-lipped. They have yeah. not apparently been leaking information. But I think you make an, you make an interesting point. You know, as I mentioned before, I want to go by this, the 35,000 foot, uh, you know, look at all of this. The, the Democrats have figured out that uh, they can run on the culture of corruption. And and in fact, this does seem to be a real problem for Republicans, even, even beyond uh, Donald Trump. I have a piece uh, up on the Weekly Standard right now where, you know, basically you know, the, the rot at the top and, and, and the fact that the Republicans have bet their political future on the proposition that character doesn't matter, or at least Donald Trump's character does not matter. And as a result, they're facing a midterm that they were hoping was going to be about tax cuts and about uh, the strong economy and maybe about the Supreme Court. And it may, in fact, turn on the sleaze and corruption, not just around the president and his inner circle, but throughout Congress. The fact that, you know, it sort of got a little got lost in the shuffle uh, the day that, uh, you know, Manafort's conviction and uh, the plea bargain by by Michael Cohen. But you had this rather extraordinary uh, indictment of Republican Congressman Duncan Hunter from California, who yeah. was indicted on 60 counts of misusing $250,000 of campaign money for I mean, it, it, it is it is filled with dazzling details. Uh, the used campaign money not just for his kids' tuition and for family vacation, but apparently to pay airfare for a pet rabbit. <laughs> just put a pin on that one. Yeah. 30 shots of tequila, and he and his wife came up with a scheme to buy him some shorts, but they decided to do that at some golf club, which they then could claim that the expenditure was to buy balls for wounded warriors, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. That 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 Duncan Hunter was, I think he was the number two member of Congress uh, to endorse Trump. That his response was quintessentially Trumpian. Yeah. That he lashes back and says, "This is the Democrat-controlled Department of Justice," which it's yeah. not. Uh, you know that it's all fake news, and and it does strike me that there has been this culture created that encourages people to imitate sort of the the moral compass of Donald Trump and to believe somehow that they are immune from consequences because of, you know, the tribal, uh, the tribal universe that will provide them cover, that will rationalize and deflect. And that, yeah. that what's happening is not just that Republicans have, you know, have been cowed and have become timid and unwilling to push back, but we've really kind of created this hothouse environment where we're growing more swamp creatures and just watching Duncan Hunter you really got the sense that, okay, 
this is awful. It's indefensible. And it is going to be a massive political problem for Republicans across the board. Yeah. You know, from the very beginning of, uh, I guess, say from the moment President Trump's uh, campaign in the primaries reached that point of critical mass where it, it did seem inevitable that he would be the nominee, you know, Republicans and conservatives, or at least a lot of them, adopted this fantasy where you could separate uh, ethical questions and moral moral questions about the candidate from the policies of that administration, mm-hmm. and that was always a, 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 a totally fanciful distinction for you know so many ways. First of all, uh, corruption can corrupt the substance of policy. Corruption can impede the implementation of even good policies. Right, everything from from uh, say what what happened at the EPA, where where a number of bad choices by the EPA administrator. Uh, ended up utterly torpedoing his ability to manage that agency. And now we move forward, and pretty soon those policies that the EPA is putting out, policies I largely agree with, mm-hmm. are now going to go to court, where judges are going to be so much more skeptical of all the all, everything that's coming out. What I'm saying is the basic attempt to divorce uh, moral aspects of this candidate, of this president, from the policies, we're now seeing how that totally breaks down. And we're also now seeing how it does have this gravitational pull on people around the president, whether it's in the cabinet or in Congress or whatever. Uh, when the president himself is not setting a strong example, everybody else starts to mold themselves to this new example. Mm-hmm. And actually, mm-hmm. I think will make it more difficult for in the future for Republicans who actually have genuine criticism of the press or genuine criticism of charges being levied against them they're all going to be undermined by the sorts of things that President Trump and Duncan Hunter are doing. But if, if I can, if I may, I just want to sure. tie this back to something you said a, a little bit ago mm-hmm. about the framers of our Constitution and their view of, of, of what we call today civic virtue or Republican virtue. One of the great successes in conservative legal movements and conservative constitutionalism generally in the last 30 years was to remind the public of the importance of constitutional structure, right? This idea that we have a government that doesn't depend just on the goodwill of the office holders. You know, we, as Madison said, we need a, a government fit for men who aren't angels. And mm-hmm. so that was a great success. But I think one of the costs of that success is we forgot that the framers, they, they did care about civic virtue and Republican virtue. When, when, when Madison said we need a government fit for men who aren't angels, you know, enlightened statesmen won't always be at the helm of the ship of state. He didn't say we need a government fit for men who are, who are devilish, right? And he didn't say that a government can stand if everybody in government throws away uh, the, the basic virtues that undergird this. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. You know, when the Federalist Papers, when their authors weren't writing about structure, they were writing about Republican virtue in Congress, especially in the presidency, uh, and in the courts, in the presidency, you know, I think I might have been the first person to write about the emoluments clause. I wrote about it years before the election in the Weekly Standard with regarding concerns about Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Global Initiative and its relationship with the Russians. It feels like a thousand years ago. Yeah, it does. And I, I, I quoted a couple of uh, Federalist papers where I think it was Hamilton was saying the emoluments clause was so important because the American public needed to trust that the president was loyal to the American public and not to outside influence. And that if those doubts about the president and his loyalties would start to seep in, then all hell could break loose in the American public uh, and its sort of civic structure 
and, and social ties in general. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think if there's one thing conservative lawyers and people who care about the Constitution should, should be reading right now in the midst of all this storm surrounding the, the administration, I think it's those parts of the Federalist Papers that remind us that civic virtue isn't, can't be the only thing that guides our government, but it, it has to be part of it. I think that's a very important point. Of course, you probably read about uh, Jerry Falwell Jr.'s uh, tweet that uh, that we had been duped into believing, uh, you know, what uh, the, the the presidents would be held to a higher standard that the the founders. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now that the founders, uh, the exact reason that the founders fought the Revolutionary War was so that the president would be just like us. Well, you know, I don't think that actually that the founders wanted somebody who would be a chronic liar, um, you know, schoolhouse, uh, schoolyard bully or the yeah. uh, the loudmouth in, in, the, in the tavern. But this, you know, this this notion of the importance of civic virtue was really central to a lot of conservative thought not that long ago. And this yeah. for me, this is one of the uh, the most disconcerting developments is is watching some of the exact same individuals who wrote things like, I don't know, uh, the Book of Virtues. Now saying, you know, that, that winning is more important, that virtue is highly overrated, uh, and that as long as you fight, no matter what your tactics are, um, apparently that is okay. Adam, thanks so much for joining me uh, this morning. It has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate it. No, likewise, and, uh, Charlie. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>